pray. Father God, we just thank you for this wonderful, wonderful morning that you provided for us. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. This morning, um, actually this past couple of weeks, I had been um, studying for this uh, sermon, and I had a little, uh, a little glitch. It was a minor glitch, uh, not a major one, but it was a glitch. And that glitch was, um, I had all my notes on my computer, and I usually have about 15, 20 windows open, okay? And once in a while, uh, what I do is I try to find out how many words I have on the paper. So if I have like 6,000 words, it's going to be like uh, almost 50 minutes of, of, of talking. I inadvertently deleted that, and I couldn't go back because I had so many windows open, so I panicked. And so um, I asked God, you know what, I have some notes over here, but it was the night before and uh, two nights ago or three, and I, everything was going well because I had my notes, and I diverted from that, and it, I just, God said, I want you to talk about this. And I put it down on paper, and, and now it's gone. And then the last couple of nights, uh, I said, I got to start all over again. Friday, so I was Friday writing stuff down, thinking, okay, what is it I'm going to say today on Sunday? So, but it's all good, because this is what God really wants you to hear. Okay, it wasn't the other stuff. It's this stuff. So if you get mad at me, you don't like it, talk to God, okay? Father God, just thank you. Okay. The sustaining sufficiency of God's grace. Kind of like that, a lot of S's on it. Okay. We live in a fallen world. It's a cursed world. Life is filled with trouble. Life is filled with one disaster after another. Everybody struggles. We all struggle all our life long to cope with problems. There are many challenges, of course, and they're always not very pleasant. They can uh, cause exhaustion, mentally, physically, and emotionally. Because of COVID-19, some folks have, have gone into debt. We've had church members here who've had COVID. We have had uh, church members, a uh, mom who just passed away from COVID this past week. There are those who are providing assisted home care living for their parents or their spouse or other members of their family. And for those caregivers who are diligent, hardworking, and loving, and always there to make sure that their loved ones are taken care of. You know, their job is really a, a physically and emotional, uh, very difficult and it's challenging, to say the least. Pray for them and their loved ones. We have some of those in our church. Again, we have the more fires. The air hasn't been that great. Uh, people are losing their homes. We had a um, situation here where one of the family members here, uh, one of his brother, lost a home uh, in Tahoe, uh, just got the house, maybe two weeks old, and, they, and it burnt down um, in that fire. So we do have those things going on. And then you have the Taliban. Uh, persecuting uh, Afghan Christians, uh, which is now only just beginning. Uh, we've had natural disasters. We had the Mississippi Highway um, washed away the uh, road. We've had hurricanes in Louisiana. Other parts of our country was um, enduring very hot, record-breaking heat waves. Now, if that is not enough to deal with, we struggle to be faithful, right? To be joyful and to be effective serving our Lord Jesus Christ, against all of the pressure that would take away our effectiveness, our joy, our usefulness, we are fallen. Our flesh is, is corrupt. And as prisoners in the fallen flesh, living in a fallen world system, in a fallen, cursed universe, universe we face constant trouble. 
even in just serving the Lord at times. Sometimes we have to admit that since we become, become, became Christians, our trouble has increased, not decreased, increased. Now, here's the question I have for you this morning, church, and that I want to pose upon you. Is there sufficient, sustaining grace available to help us through all this trouble? It's a simple question. Is there enough? Is there? But before we move forward, um, I wanted to define uh, sustaining grace. Sustaining grace, sustaining grace is the power to keep on going when I feel like, what, giving up. Do you ever feel that way? Do you ever feel the need to just give up? Sustaining grace is the power to do the right thing when you feel like you don't want to do the right thing. There are many pitfalls in this marathon race of life, right? But regardless of what you are going through, no matter what you face, you can count on God's sustaining, sustaining grace being there. 1 Peter 5.11, my purpose is writing is to encourage you and to assure you that the grace of God is with you no matter what happens. No matter what happens, God's sustaining grace is going to be with you, guaranteed. There are some things in life that can cause you to stumble, right? And they can cause you to just get off the, the path of, of righteousness and, and the side of race, and they can cause you not to finish well in life. We all want to finish well at the end of our life. God's sustaining grace says, I will help you in those particular situations. I can count on God's sustaining grace to help me. So the first one here in, in, um, on the screen, it's called, Keep on Standing When I'm Tempted. I can count on God's sustaining grace to keep on standing when, when I'm tempted. Temptation is the first thing that causes us to, to stumble. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Watch out for attacks from the devil, your great enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for some victim to devour. In other words, Satan wants to eat your lunch. That's what he wants to do. All right? Take a firm stand against him and be so strong in faith. And you may not realize this, but the moment you become a believer, the battle starts in your life. You had a battle before, but this was an intense battle. You're no longer Satan's property. He's taking his hands off you. Now you're God's, in God's hands. You're God's property. But he doesn't like that. And there's a battle for your life every single day of your life. You're faced with moral choices. I'm going to do it right. Are you going to do it right? Am I going to do bad or good? Am I going to be selfish or am I going to be unselfish? Those moral choices are, are, are called temptations. The Bible says we are all tempted. Everybody's tempted. You'll never outgrow temptation. The Bible says that even Jesus was tempted. It says he was tempted in all points like we are, but he never sinned. The good news is this. If Jesus was tempted and he never sinned, it means it's not a sin to be tempted. It's a sin to give into temptation. You cannot control all the thoughts that go through your head and your mind, but you can control and you can choose not to dwell on them. That's the choice. You can't stop the birds from going over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. All right? Satan gives you all kinds of ideas, right? 
You don't have to feel intimidated or embarrassed or ashamed of that. He just puts those ideas in your mind. It's when the, you dwell on them when they become wrong. They become sin. Take one area of uh, temptation, sexual temptation. God made you to be a sexual person, a sexual man and woman. He gave you a sexual feelings. Those feelings are not wrong. They're not bad. They're not even sin unless you use them in the wrong way or apply them to a wrong person. Many people misunderstand and confuse attraction with lust. They're not the same thing. Or they even confuse arousal, arousal with lust. They're not the same thing. If a man is sitting outside and a good lady walks by, he goes, wow, she's very attractive. That's not lust. That's attraction. He says, look at what God has made. Beautiful. That's not lust. If you're a man, be grateful you got those feelings, right? For your wife. If you're single, looking for a wife. If you don't have those feelings at all, we need to talk. All right? If you're a man. I'm talking about the single guys and, you know, that kind of thing. If you're a woman, you see this Hulk guy. This guy's, you know, handsome man. Handsome. It's attraction, right? You look at that and say, he's very good looking. Right? That's not a sin. What is lust? Lust is the, it's not arousal. Lust is not attraction. Lust is when you take a thought and begin to dwell on it in your mind. You begin to mentally have an affair with that person you've been fantasizing with, and that person, and, and to imagine that, what would it be like to be with that person? You're fantasizing. And then that point, you cross the line. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. The temptations that you have are the same ones that all people have. But you can trust God. He will not let you be tempted more than you can stand. When you are tempted, God will also give you a way to escape. Then you will be able to stand it. This is God sustaining grace right there, right? God sustaining grace helps me keep standing when I'm tired. You ever get tired? I know I do. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm not tempted. Sometimes I'm just tired, just tired. Life is, is often exhausting. It, it, it requires a lot of strength and a lot of energy to live, especially when you're trying to do the right thing rather than the easiest things in life. There are a lot of people in life that don't tr try to do the right thing, right? They just want to do what's ever the easiest thing to do. That's no problem at all. You can coast through life, right, if, if you always want to be, do the easiest things. But when you're coasting, you're going where? You're going downhill. Downhill. You're, you're always headed down when you coast. On the other hand, when you try to do the right thing, even, even though it's not the easiest thing, that requires energy. That requires effort, strength. Many of you are, are the only believer where you work at, and it can be very tough, right? Or in your family. Do you ever get tired of doing what's right? Sure, because it's tough moving against the flows, swimming upstream. When all the culture is going one way, you're going to try to do the right thing. It's tough being the only person in the workplace when someone's telling a dirty joke and it's funny, and you just got to be, step back. The more you try to do what's right, the more energy is required. Mm. Yet God says, let us not grow weary in doing right, for we will reap 
a harvest of blessing if we do not give up. Galatians 6, verse 9, 6, 9. But where do you get the power? Where do you get the power to do the right thing? And when you don't feel like doing it, you're, you're dead tired. You may feel sometimes, I don't want to be uh, nice to my family, right? I, don't, I want to be cranky with my family. You may feel, sometimes I don't want to be nice to the clerk at the grocery store, right? Sometimes I want to be rude back to people who are rude to me. When you're driving on the road, somebody cuts you off. What do you do? Smile? Go ahead. No problem. No problem. Peace. Jesus. Where do you get the energy to do the right thing? Where do you get it, church? 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. It is God who gives us the ability to stand firm for Christ. Right? He has commissioned us, and he has identified us of, as his own by placing, guess what? The Holy Spirit in our hearts. In our hearts. The Holy Spirit. Stand firm. Those two go together. The key to the ability to not getting tired and, and giving up and doing the right thing when you know it's the right thing to do is having the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's he who energizes you, not you and your own power. That will not work. God wants to give you his power to do it, to do what you need to do. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is at work within you, giving you the will and the power to achieve his purpose. Will and power. Power and will. The Christian life is not a matter of willpower or your power, willpower that is, but a matter of God's will and God's power in your life. When God gives you the will and the power to do something, you'll be able to do it. God never asks you to do something he doesn't give you the power to do. Right? Would you agree with that? God has more power than you, right? Doesn't he? Obviously, he does. God made the sun. The sun produces more power in one single second than all of human race has used throughout all history. More energy is produced in one second than we've used throughout history, and the sun has enough energy to burn for billions of years, yet God made the sun. That's the kind of power he's got. Then he comes to you and says, hey, you need some power? I'll give it to you. I'll give you power. Because God's power is unlimited. He never gets tired. Never gets tired. God says, I will energize those of you who trust me. There's another way, of, uh, way God gives us his sustain, uh, sustaining grace. Not just when I'm tempted, not just when I'm tired, God's sustaining grace gives, gives me the power to keep on going when I'm troubled. When I'm troubled, in other words, when I have problems, when I have difficulties, Jesus said, in the world you have what? Trouble. He said, expect it. Don't be surprised. You're going to have difficulties and obstacles. And you will have situations that you cannot handle. He says, I will give you the power. There are three kinds of trouble. I'm sure there's more. I'm going to give you three this morning. There's a kind of trouble that kind of blows you away like a wind. There's a kind of trouble that weighs you down like a sack of potatoes. There's a kind of trouble like the rugs pull under from beneath you. 
But the most difficult kinds of trouble to handle are the troubles, the problems in life that are not that are unplanned, unrelenting, and undeserved. Unplanned, unrelenting, and undeserved. There are some things I, I bring onto my, on myself. I figure I made the mess. I've got to clean it up, right? I don't, I don't mind handling problems I created. I figure that's par for the course. I did it. I got to clean it up. Fess up. I got, I got to do that. But the most difficult problems in life to handle are the unfair ones. You're, innocent, you're an innocent party. What happened? You didn't plan it. You don't feel like you deserved it. You didn't ask for it or cause it. Those are the ones that are hard to handle. I was hit from behind three years ago. Lady comes out of the car. Her car was smashed pretty bad. She tells me, don't call your insurance. I'll take care of you. I sit back. Nobody's around. Uh, so I call my insurance. Okay? And about two or three weeks later, the uh, assessor, insurance guy, comes out to fix my car. And then a week after, I get a call. And the agent tells me, uh, the lady that hit you, she says she has a witness that you, you went back into her. Okay? You went backwards. And she got away with it. And I got dinged. Those are the things you cannot handle. I mean, cannot expect, they're unrelenting and unplanned. You first stop doing the if-only game when those situations come. If only I had a different parent, if I if only had a different, uh, married a different person, you know, those, that stuff doesn't work. That doesn't solve your problems. It doesn't ease your pain when you're going through stuff. Instead, you need to focus on who? Christ. Simple. Focus on Christ. Focus on his sustaining power. The Bible says in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, 41, 10, don't worry because I am with you. You don't be, don't, don't be afraid because I am your God. I will make you strong. I will help you. I will support you with my right hand that saves you. He says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to make you strong. I will help you, the Lord says. I will support you and I will save you. That's pretty much Covers it all, right? We can go home. God is our refuge. He is our refuge. And he's our strength. Always ready to help in times of trouble. There was a certain poor man spent many years saving money to, to realize his dream on a dream of going on a cruise. When he finally saved the required sum, he, he bought the ticket. Knowing he could not afford this, the extravagant food that's on the ship, he took what he could afford. He took some crackers and some peanut butter. So, after a few days, he started observing other passengers eating this luxurious meals. It was a feast. His peanuts, you know, butter crackers became stale. They're tasteless, nasty stuff. He was desperately hungry, and he begged a porter to allow him to work for food. And the porter says, why, sir, didn't you realize meals are included with your ticket? You may eat as much as you like. Wow. Lots of Christians live like that man, not realizing the unlimited provisions 
that are theirs in Christ Jesus. They're, much, they're munching on stale scraps. There's no need to live like that. Everything we could ever want or need is included in the cost of admission. The Savior has already paid for it. Grace upon us. Grace upon grace upon grace. One of the most wonderful statements about our Lord is this. He says, full of grace, John 1, 14. John 1, 14. And of his fullness we have received. And grace upon grace, John chapter 1, verse 16. John chapter 1, verse 16. Grace upon grace speaks of the accumulation, accumulated Grace, one grace following upon another, upon another, upon another. Such grace is is within reach. It's ours each and every single day. It's unlimited and sufficient for every need. And then Paul pulls this one out. He says, the abundance of grace. Ephesians 5.17. I mean, excuse me, Romans 5.17. Romans 5.17. And then the riches of God's grace. Ephesians 2, 7. Ephesians 2, 7. And we have surpassing grace. The abundance of grace, the riches of God's grace, and the surpassing grace. 2 Corinthians 9, 14. Abundance of grace, surpassing riches. And then Peter comes in. He comes in the scene. He calls this the manifold grace of God. The manifold grace of God. Of God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. First Peter chapter 4, verse 10. In the Greek, it's multifaceted or multicolored. And we talked about this, I believe, last week. Multifaceted, multicolored. He used the same Greek word with in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, I believe, 6. 1 Peter 1, verse 6, with reference to the various trials believers face. That's a wonderful parallel, right? And what it's called, and you put it all together, is God's multifaceted grace is sufficient for our multifaceted trials. Amen? And perhaps nowhere, uh, nowhere is the, the magnificence of grace more wonderfully stated. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 through 11. And I call this the super abounding grace. Not Superman, but the super abounding grace. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything. You may have, you may have an abundance of every good deed. You will have it enriched in everything for all liberty which there is, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 Verse 8 and 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 and 11. In a sense, those, those two verses sum up everything that could, could ever be said about our sufficiency in Christ, set in the context describing God's material provision. They have meaning that obviously extends to limitless proportions. It's unlimited. And it's surpassing, surpassing grace indwells every believer. It does. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14. 2 Corinthians 9, 14. And so the question is, is it any wonder Paul could not restrain his praise to God for such an incredible gift? 
Amen? All sufficient grace. All sufficient grace. Paul experienced God's grace, as few others have, because he endured suffering, as few others have. One of the greatest, great questions that people have when it comes to God is how do we understand God and suffering? Why do bad things happen you know, to, to good folks? To the Corinthian Christians, suffering a big issue. It was a big issue to, to them. For them, they cannot understand how a, a true apostle of Jesus could suffer to the degree that the apostle Paul had suffered. And this has caused Paul's critics to consider Paul an inferior apostle. Rather than deflect his, uh, his uh, sufferings, this is what Paul does. Paul has, has magnified his sufferings, magnified his sufferings. So Paul says this, if I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 30. Boast in the things that show my weakness. Nobody wants to do that, Right? The Apostle Paul is not going to lay down the trump card of his suffering. Yet again, Paul does not do this to promote or elevate himself, but to express why suffering should never be considered a reason to dismiss a person as a true servant of Jesus. I have a thorn in my flesh. I don't like it. I often wish I didn't have it. At times, I'm exasperated by it. It makes almost everything harder daily, carrying my duties out with my family, my work, and the ministry responsibilities. Nearly everything I do, it weakens me. I often feel that it would be more effective and fruitful without those things. And I have pleaded with my God, sometimes in tears, for it to be removed or, or for more power to overcome it. But it remains. No, I'm not going to explain what my thorn in the flesh is, because you have your own thorn in the flesh. Or if you live long enough, you'll be given one more perhaps, right? Yours will be different from mine, but its purpose will be similar. For we are given thorns that significantly weaken us in order to make us stronger. That's why they're there for. Self-sufficiency Self-sufficiency is an American trademark, okay? The spirit, Davy Crockett, you know? The essence of, Christ, uh, the essence of sin is self-sufficiency. The essence of Christianity is God-sufficiency, okay? In order to diminish our self-sufficiency and develop this, this God-sufficiency, God brings suffering in our lives. Paul was no... Stranger to, to suffering. Yet his approach to it was kind of weird to some folks. Paul bragged about his weakness, which came in a strange form of a thorn in the flesh. Paul's thorn in the flesh is a direct result of his numerous glorious revelations. We're now in Ephesians chapter, second, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1 through, 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, through 1 through 6. The early part of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul told, told a very rare but wonderful, mind-boggling experience that he had more than 14 years prior to writing this letter. 
For some reason, he spoke of it as it were someone else. He said in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ. I knew a man in Christ. But it becomes clear that he was speaking of himself. He says that he isn't sure whether what he experienced was out of body or in, in the body. But one way or another, he was caught up in the third heaven, which he also referred to as paradise, where he heard things too scary to be repeated. Chapter 12, 2 Corinthians, verse 2 and 3. Now, there were a number of ways that the ancient, ancient folks expressed the different heavens of our creation and spiritual, in the spiritual realm. And one way they spoke of our sky as the first heaven, okay? It's the earth atmosphere. You know, there's birds, clouds. This heaven is spoken often in the Old Testament. The Lord would open the heavens, the storehouse of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season and to bless all the work of your hands. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 12. The second heaven, the Hebrews describe a consistent, uh, consisted of the universe as we know, as we know it, this heaven consisted of the sun, moons, and stars. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Psalms chapter 19, verse 4 and 6. Psalms chapter 19, verse 4 and 6. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God. This was the experience Paul is describing here. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. God dwells in the highest heaven, but will God really dwell on earth? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you, God. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27. This person was able to hear things that cannot be told. He heard things that, that people are not permitted to speak. Paul makes it very clear in verses 5 and 6 that he is speaking about himself, but he is not going to boast about himself, even though what he is saying is the truth. But Paul has not spoken about these things so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Verse 6, chapter 12. Friends, Paul is an apostle. Yet even he did not want people thinking of him in an improper way. Paul does not want to talk about things he has seen or experienced, according to Scripture here. Rather, he wants people to see his godly life and his proclamation of the gospel message of our Lord Jesus. He's not there to wow them, okay, just wow them with his personal experiences. Just look at his godly life, godly life, and his faithful proclamation of God's word. How many times do we see people today, how many times do we see people today who claim to be Christians who do, to, do not do this? They, they like to brag. They, they set themselves up as a special and, and a, a way to tell the stories of the visions and dreams that they claim were given to them by God so that they will impress and, and that you will listen to them. Please notice that Paul says that he does not do this. He does not use uh, such things to get people to listen to him. Even though he had all kinds of experiences and, and he could have shared with these folks, personal experiences and testimonies are not the point. His faithful life, his faithful proclamation of the gospel is what people are, are supposed to see. 
and listen to only. This is what Paul did for the Corinthians. Verse 7. But what Paul says next is, I would say, highly instructive in regards to suffering and how God run, runs the world. So, keep, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, and a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 7. Notice that the purpose to the suffering that Paul is experiencing, so to keep me from what? Becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. And to keep me from becoming conceited in the purpose is the purpose of God. Now we need to see these two angles regarding what Paul is going through. A thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. He refers to it as the, what, the messenger of Satan. You could be saying that God was allowing to afflict him with that thorn. Whatever it was, just as God has allowed Satan to afflict Job in the Old Testament. Or he could be saying that regardless of what origin of the thorn, Satan nevertheless used, used it to uh, throw Paul off track spiritually and cause him to have the wrong attitude. Paul said that the Satan used it to buffet him. And that Greek word for buffet means to beat. It means to strike, but in a fist, just like that, which indicates that the pain was brutal, all right? And it was very intense. Satan is the greatest of all hypocrites. On the one hand, Satan seeks to entice men, right? To indulge in their fleshly lusts. On the other side, Satan eagerly likes to take advantage of every opportunity he has given to destroy our fleshy bodies. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. Satan has a hand in Paul's thorn in the flesh, and Paul knows it. Now, while Satan is uh, the immediate cause of Paul's affliction, Ultimately, God is, 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 the, uh, is in control, using not only his affliction, but Satan himself to bring glory to himself and bring about what is good for the Apostle Paul. That's what God is doing. Some think God is able to do, use only good people, that the ones who really trust him, who pray and who obey his word and to accomplish his plans and purpose. God is sovereign, right? He's, he's in total and complete control of every part of his creation. He's in control of Satan. He controls Satan and his activities. Satan can only act within the limits God has set on him. Paul is no masochist who, who you know, like enjoys suffering from because of, for suffering's sake. And as our Lord did, didn't like when he was uh, agonizing death at the cross of Calvary. And, and the Lord says, uh, this cup be removed from him. Matthew chapter 26, verse 36 through 46. Matthew 26. 36 to 46. So Paul does not delight in this thorn in the flesh. And you know what he does? He asks for it to be removed. Now, many other people live every day with a different kind of pain. The pain of a crushed spirit, a broken heart, in some cases because of a relationship being torn apart, or because of being betrayed by someone who, who they trusted 
or because seeing someone they love throw away their life away, making foolish, uh, God dishonoring, destructive choices. And the list can go on. Pain and suffering also can be mental and emotional as well as physical. And for others, our thorns can be painful, you know, beyond measure. Unbearable, they darken our whole spiritual sky. You think, you think it will cram and cripple your usefulness. If only I didn't have this, I could serve the Lord better. So I look at it this way. In God's seminary, suffering is one-on-one. That's the course, and that's the required course. The professor is pain. That's the teacher, okay? And the tender professor also. And there are no course substitutions. It is impossible to upgrade from suffering to first class, but Paul worked harder, had been in prison more frequently, been flogged so much severely and been exposed to death time again and again. If there were a way to you know, upgrade his, his status as Christ's disciples, even when we see this, Paul, he would be first in the, in the class. He'd be way up there. And like Paul, when you first encounter the, the thorn, you pray long, right? You pray and, and, and hard to God remove it. You ever been there? But Paul doesn't do that. But this is what happens with Paul, and it leads to a powerful lesson. And this is very important. Subtraction, subtraction is not God's spiritual mathematical operation in this case. Addition is. Addition is significant grace, his grace, the blessing of everlasting grace. And God says, my Grace is sufficient to keep him from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh, a measure of Satan to harass me, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. The Phillips uh, paraphrase says this, in order to prevent my becoming absurdly, absurdly conceited, I was given a physical handicap. And also, troubles knock a lot out of nonsense out of us. But people who suffer don't know at times the purpose of their sufferings. And I'm not referring to situations in which uh, the cause of suffering is, is obvious, such as when a person gets drunk, he wrecks his car, and sustains horrible, painful injuries. Many cases of that are, are, are generally uh, the type to be cited, the police will go there and take care of that. But when it comes to most suffering, especially the types of suffering over which we have little or no control, and most of those people, most of those people don't know why they're being allowed to suffer. And like I mentioned before, those are the ones that are unplanned. They're not undeserving. So the overall explanation, when people ask, why am I suffering? Why is the people suffering? Because we live in the fallen world. Ever since sin entered the world, there's been chaos and suffering. Also, the Bible gives us some further observations about suffering. And God has revealed the exact reason for a person's suffering. But to a large degree, the issue of suffering is, is very mysterious at times. You don't know. 
And we should never jump to conclusions about others or even about ourselves. Sometimes a person will say, what did I do to cause God to let them hurt me or let, let the situation give me pain? When in reality, it might have nothing to do whatsoever with your conduct. It could be related to your conduct, perhaps. If it is, God will take care of that. He may chastise you, right? But the point is that we should not just assume that it's because of something we've done or left undone. If God chooses to reveal the purpose for a person's uh, uh, affliction, that's, that's fine, because he is God. But you and I must never judge to, as why people have handicaps or diseases. That's not our prerogative. Let me say that God gets this, I would say, this dubious credit for a lot of things he didn't have one solitary thing to do with so far as initiating them. Of course, everything that happens has, the, has to pass through the filter of God. His God, his permission. God permits a lot of things that breaks his heart. He has created man. He's a free moral agent. And rather than cancel out our power to choose or, or uh, deleting the laws and cause and effect that he created, with a sad heart, he allows us to make foolish choices that sometimes brings ruin and suffering, that certainly doesn't explain all the suffering in the world by any means, right? But it's a part, it's a part of, the, of the equation, at least a small part. And the bottom line is this, church. Even though we're not able to understand much of the suffering that takes place in this world, we who are followers of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior simply have to walk by faith and trust, confident that God never makes a mistake, right? That all of his dealings with us are in love. And even when we can't make any sense of what's happening and that one day he's going to make it all come out like it's supposed to. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. Chapter 12. We're told that Paul prayed about his infirmities. Do you pray about yours, church? Have you brought your case before the great physician? That's our Lord. James chapter 5, verse 13 and 15. 5, 13 and 15. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the, prayer of faith, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And, he, and, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And notice this. I love this about what Paul did. What he did was he, Paul prayed definitely. He prayed definitely to take, take away that thorn of his flesh. He prayed earnestly when he was asking God. He tells us that he pleaded with the Lord, and probably he was crying. He would say, take this away. And Paul prayed persistently. He just didn't do it one time. Or he tells us that he made his request. How many times? Three times. Three times. And yet after praying three times, the thorn was still, the thorn was still there. But notice his prayer was, was answered, not in the way he expected, but in the way God wanted. When we pray, sometimes the Lord answers our prayers with a yes, sometimes with a no, Sometimes with a wait, and sometimes he answers quite differently from what we expected, and as he did here. What a good thing it is that he does not always answer our prayers 
in the way we want, right? But he said to me, my grace is sufficient. Verse 9, God has given us sufficient grace to endure. Paul's prayer was answered in the greatest possible way. By a revelation of the Lord himself, the greatest answer to prayer is not the thing we pray for, but it's him. Verse 9, and notice, with the revelation of himself, the Lord gave the promise of his sufficiency. And this is what it is. The sufficiency, it was a powerful sufficiency. For the Lord said, my grace, my power, those are linked up with the expressions found in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28 and 31. Isaiah 40, 28 and 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted, fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's what God does. With Paul, it was a personal sufficiency. And notice in verse 9, he says, he, me, this is very wonderful. This is a great sufficiency for you and your need and great sufficiency for me. Number three, it it was a present sufficiency. The Lord said, my grace is sufficient, not will be, all right? The grace was already there for Paul to draw upon, right? All he had to do was to appropriate, take it, receive it, okay, to experience and to enjoy. It was also a plentiful sufficiency. The Lord said, my grace is enough. And as the needs increase, guess what? The grace will increase. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, in our Lord Jesus Christ, in all that grace we need to make us, uh, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> is all of our grace we need to make us the people he wants us to be to keep us doing God's will, to to enable us to to finish our course with joy. And all we have to do is to draw upon his plentiful supply. And the last one here was a a practical sufficiency. The grace of the Lord became operative in Paul's weakness, and therefore the thorn became the channel. The thorn became the channel of of the power of God, for his strength was made perfect in what? Weakness. Verse 9, the answer is not that suffering would be removed. Rather, God had given sufficient grace so that we are able to endure. Do you believe this, church? Do you really believe that? We have what we need for this life, right? We have what we need to endure, to excel and flourish as disciples of Christ. We have God's grace to, to cope with, with, with the weaknesses that are, that are not removed, that are still there. God's power is made perfect through weak, our weaknesses. It is when we are out of strength that we finally depend on God the most, right? He's the last one to hear. He should be the first one. Suffering is, is, is to burn away our pride, our, our, our self-confidence, and our independence. I can become very proudful. I can become very prideful. Therefore, we embrace the suffering given to us because we have been given God's grace. Amen? Which is sufficient to endure 
and is necessary for growth in our faith. Verse 10, Paul realized further that if the thorn could be a means of God's power being demonstrated in his life, then he could, he could all of life's, he can face all life's uh, adversities and be used in such a way that he was being used. Verse 10 says this, therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, pleasure in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distress uh, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak again, then I'm strong. When Paul said that I took pleasure in all those hurting things, he didn't mean that he enjoyed the pain, okay, or persecution. Paul was not, you know, unbalanced psychologically. The pleasure he took in those, those negative experiences was, in fact, that each such experience would re- remind him of his weakness and his utter dependence upon the Lord. And then and by re- realizing that, that and turning to the Lord for help, he would experience a, a fresh inflow of God's power in his life. And to Paul, the pleasure of experiencing God's mighty power more than offset whatever suffering he had to, do, had to endure. I need these things so that I will depend on God, church. If, if God did not allow us to experience these failures, sufferings, difficulties, we would never rely on God. We would continue to think how great we are, all right, and how much we are in control over our lives. We don't need God. But it is in our weakness, our frailty, that we surrender our will to God. And the only way I have made it through the trials and pains in my life has been by the power of God. You know, school of hard knocks, I, you know, God says, you can do this, and I don't want to do that. I want to do it my way, right? I did not have the power to make it through and, and did not think I would make it through at times. But God gave me strength at the right time, right? He sent me people to come to my aid and, and to help me at the right time. Therefore, I will be content, delight, and take pleasure in my weaknesses and sufferings because I know that God is at work in me so that his power is on display. We learn something extremely valuable here. Focusing on all of our efforts and removing our difficulties is not the goal here, church. Rather, we are able to look at trials and to do exactly what James has told us to do. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen? Let's give it up.